0: Greetings to Jesus' name. I'm Bishop Chester Wright, and this is Call to War video briefing number two. Call to War is God's call to his church to participate with him in supernatural prayer that affects this world. It is a corporate effort not just an individual effort. Of course, all corporate efforts start with individuals. And if I don't personally have a prayer life, joining with others to pray is not going to give me a prayer life. So this is video briefing number two. And uh, the Lord has given me some very specific things to say in this particular video. And uh, I'd like to begin by reading Psalms 114, at least the first five verses of Psalms. Uh, short while ago, the Lord, I was praying and the Lord directed me. I heard the words in prayer, what aileth thee, O sea? And I looked it up. Uh, I knew I'd read it before, but I didn't remember where it was or what the context was. And uh, so I looked it up and when I began to read it, the Holy Ghost confirmed to me this was this is a message to his church. This is a word of God to the church. And I'll let you decide that for yourself between you and the Holy Ghost. I'm reading Psalms 114 beginning with verse 1. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah was his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled, and Jordan was driven back. The mountains skipped like rams, and the little hills like lambs. What ailed thee, O sea? What ailed thee, O thou sea, that thou fleddest? Thou Jordan, that thou wast driven back. What what an amazing amazing uh, declaration by the Holy Ghost through King David. What 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 an amazing declaration. What a what a uh, a challenging uh, set of scriptures. It starts with when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange uh, of strange language. We know they had been in Egypt as slaves approximately 430 years. And uh, they didn't go into into Egypt as slaves. They went as the relatives of Joseph, who at that time had become the number two man in Egypt because there was famine in the land. But somewhere along the line, when the Pharaoh that knew Joseph died, and the new Pharaoh came up and he saw how rapidly The uh, Hebrews were multiplying, they enslaved them. They didn't come there as slaves. They came there as honored guests of Joseph, second only to Pharaoh. But somewhere along the line, they became a threat in the minds of the Egyptians, and they enslaved them. And over that period of time, whatever portion of that 430 years that they were slaves, Generation after generation was born, and suddenly that became their new norm. The stories of living in Canaan, the stories of their uh, of Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and the promises made to to the children of Israel in Canaan and to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, they, they became they became just. Uh, Nice things to talk about over the evening as you're resting in the evening, over your evening meal as you're resting from the day's labors. But they seemed really far-fetched. They seemed way, way off. The past seemed very distant and the future seemed impossible because slavery, bondage in Egypt had become their norm. And even with the efforts of the Egyptians to slow down the multiplication of the Hebrews, they still multiplied. God still blessed them to multiply, but they were still slaves. So when God called Moses and he sent Moses back to Egypt, who had been the uh, stepson, the adopted son of Pharaoh through, his, through Pharaoh's daughter, uh, or the adoptive uh, grandson is a better way of putting it, I guess, of Pharaoh through Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, certainly the Pharaoh sitting on the throne knew Moses, even though he'd been gone 40 years. He'd been going 40 years. He knew Moses. And uh, uh, Mo- Moses knew him too. So God says, let my people go, and you know the story. Pharaoh said no. This happened ten times total. And ten times, nine times, Pharaoh said go, and then he changed his mind, or no. And then finally the tenth time he said go, and they they moved out. And uh, in moving out, all of a sudden it became obvious to Pharaoh and all of his chief rulers, wait a minute. Uh, the Egyptians have learned not to do manual labor because we trusted the slaves to do all that. That's what their job was. It's not our job. And so they realized their whole economy was going to be destroyed by letting the slaves go. So they didn't have a choice really from a natural perspective. They didn't have a choice, but to go after Israel. God knew all of that. He knew all of that in advance. He knew Pharaoh's heart he knew what to say to Pharaoh, to expose what was in Pharaoh's heart. God didn't make Pharaoh make any of those choices. When the scripture says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart. He knew what to say to Moses uh, to Pharaoh and to the heart of uh, to the pride of Pharaoh's heart to cause Pharaoh to bow up and say, No way. He also knew. He also knew. What Pharaoh's reaction was going to have to be when he came to himself, he realized even in his grief of his firstborn son and all the firstborn sons in Egypt dying, even in that grief, wait a minute, we can't let these people go. This is going to destroy our nation. And so they had to pursue. So here's this nation of slaves from the Egyptians' perspective, the chosen people of God, the heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from God's perspective. And he leads them up to the Red Sea, and there's no way across. And a man standing at the command of God with his rod stretched out over the Red Sea all night caused the Red Sea to part so that this two to four million people, depending on who's counting, and all their animals crossed on dry ground across the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army saw that, assumed it was going to continue. They went in when everybody of the Hebrews were clear from the other side of the the sea uh, that had been parted. Pharaoh stretched the rod back out. The Waters collapsed and destroyed all of the Egyptian army in one fell swoop. And so that's where... These verses start when Israel went out of Egypt. So, in that, those few words, that's uh, all contained in that brief synopsis of the story as I've just shared with you. That I know you already know. Now, the next verse is the one that is shocking. When Israel went out, Judah was his sanctuary. What is was a sanctuary. In biblical terminology, that is a dedicated, consecrated dwelling place. Praise God. So the tabernacle wasn't his dwelling place. Uh, later, the temple wasn't his dwelling place. Judah was his sanctuary. Judah was his sanctuary. And Israel was his dominion. Judah, and I know Judah means praise and Israel means prince or having power with God. Uh, Very uh, brief uh, explanations of those names that I'm sure you also know. Uh, But Judah was his sanctuary and Israel was his dominion. Now, Uh, Those are nice words. Nice words sound nice, don't they? That's pretty poetic. It's pretty awesome. Except that the next verse says, the sea saw it and fled. And Jordan was driven back. Now, the Red Sea is a tidal water. So it has tides going up and down. So technically the uh, sea could part without having a major effect upon water levels and all that kind of stuff. But Jordan, the Jordan River was driven back. So a river is flowing, and the river has a direction of flow, and in order to walk across a river on dry ground, You don't have to do anything to the downflow side of the river. You only have to cause the water on the upside of the river to flow against the flow and pile up upstream. So it was driven back. Terminology is very accurate. It's very accurate. And then he says, The mountains skipped like rams and the little hills like lambs. Now, unfortunately, I haven't had the opportunity yet to study that out to see what that possibly could be talking about, except we do know that mountains and hills are figuratively used of authority, especially opposition uh, to in a, in a spiritual perspective. And so if the mountains skipped like rams, in the little hills like lambs, it meant all of the supernatural opposition was shuddering. Shuddering. Zechariah 4 says, Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, P-L-A-I-N, a flat ground. And Jesus said you have faith, you can speak to this, say unto this mountain, be thou removed, be thou cast to the sea, and it should obey you. So the sea saw Judah as the sanctuary and Israel as his dominion and fled, parted. And the Jordan River rolled back upstream. And the mountains figuratively... The supernatural principal- principalities and powers of this world shook over what was there, and then, then the Holy Ghost. <laughs> it's it's almost like uh, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is rubbing it in against this world and the the uh, the Prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. He said, "What ail thee, O thou sea?" That thou fleddest, thou Jordan, that thou wast driven back. And we know that those two things are approximately 42 years apart, time wise. Approximately. And yet, it's still happening. Even with them in the wilderness for 40 years after the two year period from Egypt to when they first approached the promised land, during which time God gave them the, uh, the Ten Commandments, etc., cetera, uh, they were still his sanctuary and his dominion. What ail the O.C.? What ail the O.C.? Now, it is accepted by most biblical principles that what God said and did for to through Israel in the Old Testament, naturally and literally. He intends to do and is promised to do. And sees the church as uh, those same things spiritually in the New Testament. So, yeah. What he promised to Abraham, and we are, according to Paul, in several places, Galatians, Romans, whatever, we are Abraham's offspring by faith. And the promises made to Abraham are made to us. So whatever God did to the it to Israel, his first church, because un that 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 the, the sea was a dividing line. They were baptized in the sea. Why? Because before that time, God dealt, mainly dealt with individual individuals or families. But when Israel came out of Egypt, that's the first time God had a congregation. They were called the congregation in the wilderness. And of course, in the New Testament, congregation and church are synonymous terms. And so that was God's first congregation. And the things he did with that first congregation, naturally. He has every intention of doing for his second congregation, spiritually, the church. And the Bible says all these things were written for our learning and admonition, that we might find comfort and hope in the scripture. So I'm saying all of this for this purpose. What... uh, how do we see the church? Have we at least subconsciously become an institutional religious body as our church services just become, uh, the, uh, the primary act and service of this institutional body? Have we, subconsciously or even consciously stopped viewing the church as a spiritual entity and now see it as a, 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 a corporation and inst- religious institution that we're trying to make converts to that we're trying to grow this institution. Is that the case? Have we done that? do we no longer have a revelation of who we are individually as sons of God or and or the church collectively as the body of Christ and the bride of Christ? Because if we have a revelation of who we are as a son of God, and if we have truly have a biblical revelation of who we are, as the church, as the bride of Christ and the body of Christ. It changes everything. Revelation changes everything. It changes our perspective. It changes our priorities. It changes our uh, what we invest our time in and with. If we see the church as first and foremost a spiritual body, that has yes it has some business because uh that's what the apostles encountered after five chapter or four chapters of great revival acts 2 3 4 and 5 The beginning of chapter 6 all of a sudden they come to the realization that realization that they now have business to take care of and the apostles realize wait a minute we're we're letting ourselves become so preoccupied with the business of this Group that was not, we didn't have business before, just had focus, pray and preach and, 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 and fellowship and, uh, and get closer to God, closer to each other, whatever. It was pretty simple, wasn't it? But all of a sudden now they got business. And that business is a source of contention. And the apostles realized, wait a minute. The reason this business is a source of contention is we put business ahead of prayer in the ministry of the word. Have we done that? Oh, I don't have to answer that question, do I? You know we've done that. We, we put planning and programs and schedules ahead of prayer and over the pure ministry of the word. Because to us, the ministry of the word you takes place in a pulpit, doesn't it? That's the focus, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're called to preach, you can only be called to preach if you're called to a pulpit. It doesn't matter that preaching is simply the declaration of the good news and that every Holy Ghost-filled child of God should be declaring the good news to every creature. How do you preach the gospel to every creature? if you can't get them to church, right? (laughs) That right there ought to tell us something, shouldn't it? We are perplexed. How do we preach the gospel to every creature in our community if we can't get them to church? Sorry, that's called sarcasm, isn't it? I'm trying to make a point. Or better yet, the Holy Ghost is making a point. I've said it many times. I wholeheartedly believe that the body of Christ is supposed to assemble together. The word church means in, in a summary of all the context of the Greek scholars, the assembly of the called out ones. So the church by itself means assembly, whether we're together in a physical location all at the same time, or if we're just together before the throne at the same time, we're all a part of the church. We are the assembly of the called out ones that are separated from the world, separated unto him. That's why we're a holy nation, according to Peter. And so here we are. Are we willing, are you willing, am I willing, to allow the Lord to shine his light on our how we view the church, perceive the church, how we're doing church and show shine the light on his word to show us what his plan is, what his purpose is, what his promises are and what we must be in order for that plan, that purpose and the promises to come to pass. Are we? What ailed the O.C.? That you fled. What got a hold of you, Jordan? That your flow turned back on itself and went upstream? What is it that causes the mountains to tremble? Who is it? Now, the scripture says, I'm going to read several verses. I'm going to read quickly. The church is the Lord's sanctuary. Paul said this. Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... Ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments that contain, contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you who were afar off, which were afar off, and to them which are, them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Listen now. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets; Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the war, all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. Ready, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Sanctuary. We're not just His bride. We're not just his body. We are his sanctuary. We dwell in him, but he dwells in us. And him dwelling in us is what joins us together, makes us members in particular of one body. Now, are we really? I know what the word says, but are we? Are we the habitation of God through the Spirit? Are we more into entertaining in what we call praise and preaching than we are in pleasing God with our praise and our preaching? We don't preach to please people. We preach to please God. We don't praise to be entertained. We don't praise to draw people to our our singing and our playing. We praise God to please God. Are we the sanctuary? Are we the sanctuary? Because when we get that revelation and the church as, a, as individuals and a, as individual members of the body and the body come to that context, that, that understanding, when we get to that, oh, my friend, look out world, what ail thee, O sea? that thou and Jordan, that you were driven back on yourself? Why are you shaking mountains of opposition? Because the church has come out of its place it's resigned itself to as being in bondage in Egypt. The Israelites never became Egyptians. They just were their slaves. They were just in bondage there. They did not have freedom to become all that God had called them to be because they were bound by the authority of the world they lived in. Oh, we're not bound by it. Oh, yeah, that's why we hide in buildings. That's why we hide in buildings. That's why we almost never do outside the building what we do in the building because they put us in the closet. When all kind of things that are not pleasing to God are coming out of the closet today, that same spirit that's bringing them out of the closet is trying to push the church into the closet. And we're cooperating. We're cooperating out of fear. We don't want to cause trouble. Trouble for whom? Trouble for ourselves. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to be blasted. We don't want to be talked about. Because we're afraid. Whomever you fear is whom you serve. If you're serving the political correctness of this world, if you're serving man, if you're trying to please, you fear what they are going to think and say and do. Then you're not serving God; you're serving man. But if you if you're seeking to please God, no matter what it costs you, and you're seeking to do what's pleasing to God, no matter what it costs you, then and you fear and reverence God, then you are the servant of God. Now, Judah was his sanctuary and Israel was his dominion. Okay, so we've read where Paul taught in Ephesians 2 that we are God's habitation collectively. We are God's habitation of the earth. We are the body of Christ we are the body of Christ now why do we separate the body of Christ that was modeled for us sons of god and the Christ that was modeled for us in those 33 plus years in Matthew Mark Luke and John why do we separate that one and his words and his deeds from From who we are today. Oh, we're the body of Christ. Really? Is this body of Christ acting like that body of Christ? Is it? Oh, well, we're not the same. Really? Uh, Somebody should have told Jesus because he said in John chapter 14, verse 12, He that believeth in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. So Jesus was under the impression that what he did, we're supposed to do. In fact, he told the apostles, As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. John wrote that in the gospel, and then in First John, it says, as he is, so are we in this world. Do we believe that? Is it just some theoretical, theology, theological principle that sounds good, but we have no clue how to live that? Well, you can't live it till it first becomes revelation to you until you believe it's true. Because he knew he was the son of God. With all the op- opposition he experienced, he knew he was the son of God. And so he knew the father was speaking to him. And he came to do the will of the father. Well, do we know we're sons of God? Do we know we're the body of Christ? Do we know that the Father's speaking to us? Have we come to do the will of our father? Now, God in his love and mercy is allowing this world to force us into a closet or out of that closet and compromise with them. Uh, How many times did... The adversary do something, or those that were acting on his behalf do something that they meant for evil and God meant it for good. God doesn't have any problem when you go into your closet. As long as your prayer closet. Yeah. Because what he spoke to me, what I'm discussing in these call of war video briefings is. <laughs> God's not calling us to the streets to hold signs up and protest. Our signs, our protests can't change the opinion of men. But we have a higher authority. And that authority has invited us to come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, what need? Our needs? Is that the only reason we pray or is it the need of this world to know the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, to hear his gospel and know there is an alternative to their hopelessness, their depression, their addiction to fun, just trying to have some kind of quality of life that is so fleeting. Yeah. Which is it? We're gonna take this being driven into the closet, turn it into what God intends for us to come before the throne of grace. He, he, He spoke against the Pharisees that stood on street corners and prayed. I'm not saying it that the Lord would never tell us to go stand on the street. I'm not saying that at all. But stand on the street doing what? Jesus did almost all of his preaching outdoors. He wasn't protesting. He was preaching. God's not calling us to protest on the street. He's calling us to preach. Oh, I know. We don't want to be that because we know what this world's opinion is of somebody standing on the street. Well, let me tell you something. If you've been in the closet with him and you've prayed and you have laid yourself bare before him and he has forgiven you of all your sins and empowered you by his spirit and given you direction, and you go on the street; it won't matter what people think of you, because you're not trying to please them anyway. You're just trying to obey the word of God and please God. But what what is what what is this dominion? What's this dominion? I, in the Old Testament, okay, uh, he eventually gave Israel. He moved his sanctuary into the Promised Land, and he gave. Uh, Israel dominion over the promised land. It became theirs. It would belong to somebody else, but God gave it to them. They took the dominion. They took the dominion. So here we are. What does God say about our dominion? What does God say about our place in the earth? Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints... Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Well, if we're a part of him, we can't get a revelation of him without getting a revelation of us, which we already experience. Who do men say that I am? Matthew 16. Jesus asked him, who do men say that I am? And they said, what? Well, but who do you say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon of Barjona, flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter's not the rock. The Greek word for rock is huge, bold, huge cliff or granite, huge rock. Peter means a small stone. So the, upon thou art Peter, small stone, but upon this rock of revelation of who I am. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So if I am, if he's in me and I'm in him, if he's in me and I'm in him, then I need the spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him that the eyes of my understanding that the eyes of you understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance and the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. That's the third thing he wants us to know, what the hope of his calling is, what is the uh, riches of the glory of his inheritance and the saints, what does he get out of this, and what is the exceeding greatness. He wants us to have the spirit of wisdom and, and revelation in the knowledge of him, and he's talking about us. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? And now he defines that, that power that is ours in him and him through us. According to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. So whatever this is that's working is not just for the world to come. It's for here and now. And it's not just for here and now. It's what he's going to be doing in the world to come. So Christ sitting on the throne of God that sitting at his right hand of power it simply means figuratively he's sitting on the throne because that's the place of power. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the only way you and I will ever see the the infinite I am God forever. Forever. The Father doesn't have a body or a shape or a face that he's hiding from everybody. The Lord Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the Father, the only way to visibly see the Father, both now and forever. And that visible representation of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is... The Father is in him and the Father's on him. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, Christ said. And so here we are. (laughs) He's put all things under his feet. Where has he put Christ? Far above. Far above. In other words, there's no comparison here. There's no no measuring. It's not near. It's not close. it's It's not distinct. It's far above. There is no comparison all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this world, right now in this world, but it's also what he's going to do in by and through us in the world to come. Because right now, the Christ in heaven is only the head. The body of Christ on the earth is the body of the head who's sitting on the throne. And the one sitting on the throne, Christ, or the head of Christ, the head of the body, is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Well, if he put all things under his feet... And we're his body. As simplistic as this is, the feet are attached to the body, not the head. The body's attached to the head, the feet are attached to the body, and the feet are on the opposite end of the body from the head. And he didn't just give the head dominion over all things, he didn't just give the body dominion over all things. He even gave the feet dominion over all things, and that's why in ancient times when you defeated an enemy, you put your foot on his neck. Why? Because the neck connects the body to the head, and if you've got the foot on the head, the entire being is immobilized, and you have just demonstrated your dominion. You've demonstrated dominion. Jesus said they... The seventy went out, and came back, and they said, "Lord, even the even the devils are subject unto us through Thy name." And He said, "Behold, Luke ten nineteen, I give you." King James says, "Power." The Greek word is not dunamis, but uh, exousia, authority. Behold, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. And if you're actively engaged on the offensive, nothing shall by any means hurt you. So why are we getting our teeth kicked in? Because we're not on the offensive. I, 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 when I was younger, I heard uh, I wasn't in the ministry uh, of what we call the ministry yet, the ministry of the word to the body yet, and uh, I heard preachers say, you know, God promised the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. So, so he cannot he cannot defeat us. We're protected. There is no army in the world in history that's ever used gates as an offensive weapon. It's the gates of hell. Hell is supposed to be on the defensive. The church is supposed to be on the offensive. And we have a promise that hell's defense can't defeat God's offense through us. But are we on the offensive? Are we on the offensive? In Jesus' name, I pray that you and I would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of our understanding be enlightened, that we'd know the hope of his calling, what, his, what he gets out of this, and the great power he, to usward, his exceedingly great power to usward who believe that he wants to operate through the body of Christ because he's put the head on the throne of the universe and put him over everything. And if we're connected to the head and we're in cooperation with the head, because we're the body, then there isn't anything that the head can't get done in the earth through the body if the body's cooperating. If the body know who, knows who and what it is and is in harmony to and submission to the head that's sitting on that throne, there isn't anything the head can't do through the body and the earth if the body has the revelation and is submitted to it out of faith and obedience. Well, what about this? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things, and now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For The mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let till he be taken out of the way. Then, and then, when whoever's letting or withholding is taken out of the way, then, only then, Will that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, shall destroy with the brightness of His coming, even him whose coming is after the work of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders? I'm asking you today, my friend, my brother, my sister, I'm asking you. Saint, preacher, whoever you are watching this, whatever your personal faith and doctrine is, I'm asking you this question. Do we know what iniquity is? I'm going to be talking about this a whole lot more in much more detail because this is a revelation we need. But just in this right here, do we know what iniquity is? Jesus said, Matthew chapter seven, verse 21, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my father, which is in heaven. Many, Will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then while I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What's, what's iniquity then? The iniquity is not doing the will of the Father, which is in heaven. Then whose will am I doing? Well, ultimately, I'm doing my own will. So if I'm running my own life, making my own decisions... I'm living in iniquity. I'm not doing the will of the Father. (laughs) It's really amazing to me that some folks think that God only has a will when it comes to what he does at church, what song we're supposed to sing, what sermon we're supposed to preach. We may consult the will of God with that, but the rest of the time is our life and we make our own decisions and ask God to bless them. We make the decisions, we do our will, and then ask God to bless it. Now, how is it that he did not deny that the the prophecy was true? That they didn't really cast out devils? That they didn't do wonderful works? He didn't deny any of that. Because they did the will of God in ministry. They didn't do the will of God the rest of the time. He said it, King James, the Greek is literally, I never knew you in a relationship that I approved of. In other words, you never made doing my will 24-7 your priority. Never did. Because you work iniquity. You don't do the will of the Father which is in heaven. You work iniquity. Now, if... Only doing the will of God in spiritual things. We divide it all up, you know, spiritual and natural. What what we do for God, what we do for ourselves, it's all divided up, you see. If that was okay, then Jesus would have never said. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is heaven. And he didn't deny that they did his will in ministry, prophecy, casting out devils, doing miracles. And when was it that they weren't doing his will? they weren't doing his will in the rest of their life they were doing their own will. Oh, it's the mystery or the spirit of iniquity that is the spirit of the Antichrist that's the spirit of this world. Oh yes, it is, isn't it? So what does this mean? Verse 6, you, now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time, not his time as determined by, the, by Satan and the Antichrist, but his time as determined by God in his plan. The mystery of iniquity is already at work in the world, unchecked for the most part, I might say, which is what this is all about. Only he who now letteth will let till he be taken out of the way. The the word withholdeth in verse 6 and the word let in verse 7 is exactly the same Greek word and it means to restrain, to hold back. Satan's not holding himself back. He's never had any restraint. Every little tiny crack of permission God gives him, he rushes right through it without even thinking about the consequences. God knows he does that and... Utilizes it for his purposes. He doesn't make Satan do anything. He doesn't make anybody do anything. But he does control circumstances. And he knows what's in our heart. And then we decide what we're going to do based on those, what's in our heart in responding to those circumstances. But the, what does it mean, ye know what withholdeth? Now, that verb is in the Neutral tense. But then he says, the mystery of the doth already work, only he who who now letteth will let. That's in the male tense. Well, the church is the bride of Christ, and didn't bride's female, and so that's not talking about us. No. I hate to be so plain here, but the body of Christ is not female. So naturally speaking... (laughs) Naturally speaking, as the bride of Christ, the church expresses female roles such as childbirth, nurturing, because we are the mother of us all. But we're not just the bride of Christ. That's one revelation. We're also the body of Christ, and Christ was a male. And so his body can't be female. The body's male. So when the Lord refers to the body of Christ, he's talking about those roles that are typically male, authority, power, protection, covering. So we're called to be conduits of his authority and power in the earth. And he desires to restrain iniquity, through the body of Christ, while the body of Christ is still on the earth until it's taken away. Well, what is that taking away? It's the catching away. That's the literal Greek. The word rapture is not in the Bible. It's not in the Greek either. It's catching away. Until we're caught away, till we're removed. Because the restraining power of the Holy Ghost is only operating in the earth through the body of Christ. But is it operating? Is it operating? Are we today doing what God has called us to do? Now, these last few minutes in this briefing, some are going to say that I'm, being negative, but I'm only reading to you what God said to me. I'm sharing it with you. I didn't view it negative. I viewed it his urgency. His The, the urgency of his love was trying to get my attention. He said to me, the spirit of the Lord is grieved with the prayers of his people. Too many of his people are virtually prayerless. Going to church is not a substitute for a prayer life. Reading a chapter a day is not a substitute for a prayer life. It's not. He said too many are dependent on vain repetition to fill up their prayer time. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Or those that just repeat, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That, Right? Or whatever vain repetition we use. He said, too many of my people are not praying for those things that I have commanded them to. To have laborers go into his harvest. To pray the prayer he taught the disciples in Luke chapter 11. To pray and acknowledge that our Father is in heaven over everything. Manifested in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. To pray that his name would be manifested in the earth, that it might be sanctified. To pray that his kingdom might come in demonstration, that it might confirm the word of God. To pray that the will of God as it's already purposed in heaven would prevail in the earth. And on the prayer goes. Are we praying those things? Are we praying what he commanded us to pray? According to him, not many. Too many are too focused on prayers that only benefit their temporal lives. Some pray every day, but all they pray about are things that affect them and their personal lives, their temporal lives. Take care of this pain, problem, and pressure. Praise God. Too many are too focused on Devotional prayer. They just want to spend a little time with God and get that out of the way so they can go on about their day. Too many are focused on just praying to stay saved. And once they believe they have fulfilled what it takes to be saved and made sure they repented of all their sins, they're done with prayer. Too many are not exercising his authority in prayer. Too many are unwilling to let his will be the focus of their prayer and to speak the things that God has given us to pray. These are all according to God. Too many are too passive in prayer. We, we, we're we tiptoeing around asking God, if possible, maybe might do this, that, When he told us to speak the word of authority that he has given us. Too many pray too much for God to do their own will than they are for God to do his will in the earth. And the question that the Lord asked and answered is how many is too many? And he said, one. In the days to come as the Lord leads that it's time to do more of these call to war videos, briefings. I'm going to be talking about more of this specifically. i to be talking about more of it specifically. But if you would like to receive email notifications on future briefings, you can go to apostoliciron.com, spelled together. If you sign up there, put your email down. We won't use it for any other purpose, just to send you notifications that these briefings will be accomplished. The Holy Ghost is trying to speak to the church. Why he chose me, I don't know, not my business. My only responsibility is just to obey him and be his conduit. Am I the only one? God forbid. I believe there are many men of God throughout this world that God is using to speak to his body. But I am willing to submit to him that he might use me to speak to those that he's given me a voice to. Whether I know you or not, whether you know me or not. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, will the church get the revelation that we are his sanctuary in the earth? And will the church get the revelation that we are his dominion in the earth, that we might pray that his name would be glorified and sanctified, that his kingdom and the dominion of that kingdom would be manifest in the earth, not naturally but supernaturally, not in the natural realm but in the spiritual realm, that the word of God might be confirmed and that the will of God, he told us, commanded us to pray that his will that's already purposed in heaven would prevail in the earth. Are you willing to be a conduit for the Lord to use to exercise the dominion of his name, his power and authority, and his will in the earth? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you are. In Jesus' name loose the spirit of grace mercy and peace upon us especially grace that you and i would receive from him the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would see those things he's showing us and we would submit ourselves to them and that we would become obedient to him in all things in the name of the lord jesus christ i pray god bless you thank you for your time amen Thank <sharp inhale> you.